Our podcast deals with distressing topics, and this episode contains discussion about suicide. It may not be suitable for everyone. If you need to talk to someone, support is available. Call Lifeline on 131114 anytime for confidential telephone crisis support. This podcast is about my search for answers. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. We started putting children behind barbed wire. All persons are free and equal in dignity and rights. Women and children first. Episode 4, First Do No Harm, The Whistleblower Doctor. Welcome back to Women and Children First. We've been looking into various facets of Australia's treatment of asylum seekers and refugees. So far, there's not a lot to support the current regime. Legally, we've seen that the policy ignores international agreements, which impacts on our international and regional standing. Economically, it simply doesn't add up. The amount of money being poured into the current system is astonishing. I'm baffled. Morally, it's not in line with any decent human being's moral compass. As a nation, it's not in line with our values. The Parliamentary Education Office points out that a democratic society strives towards the ideals of democracy. These include respect for individuals, tolerance of differences, equity, valuing all people, and justice, treating everyone fairly. Our system of offshore detention does not reflect these ideals at all. Today we're going to hear from a doctor who was a senior official with International Health and Medical Services, or IHMS, on Nauru. His name's Dr Nick Martin. He was a Surgeon Lieutenant Commander in the British Royal Navy. He served in conflicts around the globe. But he says what he saw on Nauru was worse than what he saw in Afghanistan. He was so shocked and appalled by what he witnessed in Nauru that he felt compelled to speak out. In 2019, Dr Nick Martin was awarded a Global Whistleblower Prize by the charity organisation Blueprint for Free Speech. Coincidentally, Dr Martin's own grandfather was held prisoner on Nauru by the Japanese in World War II. I asked Dr. Martin what inspired him to become a doctor. Oh, goodness. I think um, it's one of those things. If you said you want to be a doctor, everyone stopped asking what you want to be. and They stopped pushing you for it. But um, I couldn't really tell you. I, I think it, was, um, it seemed to be a career that could take you anywhere. And I didn't really know what kind of doctor I wanted to be, but I had a, a feeling fairly, fairly early on at, at school that... Um, it was a good good way to spend your talents. I didn't want to be in the laboratory the whole time, and um, I wanted to work with people. And uh, yeah, I think you just get railroaded into into these decisions after a while. But yeah, I'm still pretty pleased about the decision I made. I joined the Royal Navy as a medical student back in the UK, and then I ended up working for the Navy for 16 years as a medical officer with them, and I managed to work around the world really in on ships and submarines, and then land-based operations. So I went to Afghanistan, I went to Kosovo, um, amongst other places. Yeah. You must have seen a wide range of conditions in your work. Can you tell us about the living conditions for refugees and asylum seekers on Nauru? Well, it was changing quite a lot when I was there. And I think uh, at first in a, on Nauru, everyone was living in tents and behind the wire. And then they... Uh, after a couple of years, after a high court challenge, where about being 
held in detention was deemed to be you know, unlawful. Then very rapidly, they simply opened the gates up um, on Nauru, and I'm not sure about Manus, I can only speak from, from Nauru. And so they could legally say, well, by the letter of the law, then these guys are not in detention anymore. But they're still stuck on a very small island. And um, uh, little by little, families would be moved out of tents, large tents, into effectively port cabins around the island in small settlements in, in these dwellings. And so the living conditions varied, depending on whether you're inside or outside the wire, so to speak. Um, and so the people living in the community would be living in, in port cabins or you know, prefab, prefab buildings, usually in, in small pockets in the community. And uh, but there's still some some families who were solely living in, in tents. And when I was there, it's a couple of years now, but they had been living in tents or large tents, which were mouldy and really uh, quite un, unpleasant um, conditions for maybe five years. I can't imagine living in a mouldy tent for five years. How were the asylum seekers and refugees received by the local Nauruans? Well, I think uh, for Nauruans, whilst they appreciated the money that was being thrown at them by the Australian government, they um, didn't understand um, why suddenly a, a large proportion, you know, if you've got, let's say, 10,000 people on Nauru for, for argument's sake, and then 1,000 a, a people being suddenly thrown into their population. So a major change in their demographics. So this is a very traditional and uh, very um, very quiet society. They, they've got um, fairly strong, uh, usually Christian religious values, and would have very, it's quite an insular people. Um, and so suddenly to be presented with um, hundreds and hundreds of people from disparate groups as you know, Iran, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, all these places, they were wholly unprepared for this. They didn't know what to make of the refugees who are suddenly living there. I think there's a mutual antagonism to the extent that the refugees didn't want to be there and the Nauruans didn't really want their way of life being disrupted like this. And also, we, again, it's a double-edged sword. They're, they're quite happy to, to have the money and, and so the infrastructure that um, hosting these refugees uh, brought with it, but also the, the spotlight that the world did get put onto, trained onto Nauru. And I think if you put Nauru into a, a Google toolbar now, apart from... So the older things in their history, you know, the economic disaster that Nauru had been through, wow. it really was effectively a, a failed state by any any metric, really, and you know, practically bankrupt as the phosphate ran out and economic mismanagement and, and just general incompetence and, and a very corrupt system. Um, they, were, they were stuck there trying not to bite the hand that fed them, so to speak. And so Nauru really found itself in a, a, a very difficult position where they didn't really want the refugees there, but they did... Uh, certainly, you know, some Nauruans profited greatly from the money that has been thrown at Nauru for this. I think some Nauruans were very accepting of the refugees and, and the other way around. And certainly, some refugees had a really good go at um, integrating and, and opening up restaurants and bars and things like that. But at no time would they ever, I'm sure, be, be told that they were Nauruan, although, although there inevitably were relationships between some of the Nauruans and some of the refugees that usually inflamed tensions. And um, if you are, you know, if you're a Nauru and you're going about your business and suddenly you see a refugee who's been, you know, given a house, even though it's pretty substandard, uh, there was a lot of antagonism towards the uh, refugees. It's often spilt through into violence where the Nauru, the refugees would feel scared to be in the community. Um, and a lot of, you know, there certainly were many instances of uh, Nauru and youths in particular just uh, attacking refugees, uh, served refugee women as well, and usually from a position of ignorance or xenophobia, not, not understanding why, for example, a load of women wearing headscarves are walking down the road, or um, just, just not really wanting these people to be in their country, but realising they had to be. That must be very challenging for both the refugees and the Nauruans. It's interesting that the Australian government thinks a country as small as Nauru can cope with housing and settling people when they really don't have the resources. Nauru's been dependent on financial aid from a number of countries, including Taiwan, China and Russia, and more recently, Australia. It's hardly a case of resettling people somewhere where they can build a future. Dr Martin 
Did the animosity between the Nauruans and the refugees ever result in violence? Yeah, certainly. I treated some people who had some fairly horrific uh, injuries. And um, so, yeah, I saw one chap who'd been repeatedly raped by a bunch of male Nauruans with a beer bottle, other people who'd um, been beaten up by groups of uh, Nauruans, um, you know, sustained significant uh, head injuries because of that. And, uh, yeah, it, it was... When you have a story like that in a small community, there was certainly a lot of distrust and there's a lot of fear and certainly a lot of the um, refugee women in particular because it's quite a male-dominated society in Nauru were just terrified to leave their houses. That's terrible. So all the while you're working as a medico and dealing with Border Force, IHMS and the Nauruan government, did you encounter a lot of bureaucracy? Well, the bureaucracy was absolutely stultifying. You know, it got to the stage where... The, the the goalposts we change from time to time. And I'm trying to think of a, a good example. When um, when someone went through a refugee status determination, so an asylum seeker was finally um, seen as being, uh, yes, you're a genuine refugee, you're claiming for asylum, the reasons why you fled your country have been accepted and you were feeling, you know, fleeing a, you know, a, a very real uh, fear of persecution or, you know, danger and violence, all that sort of stuff. What would happen was they would then effectively, according to the eyes of the Australian government, be no longer Australia's problem, and so it would become Nauru's problem. And so if you had someone who was an asylum seeker at first, so it hadn't been through this um, process, which was incredibly slow and very convoluted and quite traumatic as well for the refugees, they had to you know, relive their stories. And so you've got some traumatised people. They've got significant physical and mental um, health problems, let's say kidney stones. And so you've got a chap who's an asylum seeker, he's got kidney stones, he's solely under the care of the um, Australian government and IHMS. And we say, look, he needs to be um, needs to be seen in another country you know, to, to get the operation he needs, you know, to get rid of his kidney stones, the guy's in pain. It takes months and months and months to try and make that happen. And I certainly have one guy where he did that, and in the meantime, he became a refugee or became recognised as being a refugee. An Australian border force almost joyously sent me back an email saying, oh, no, 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 he's now a refugee. He has to go and start right back again within a Nauruan system, which they knew was inefficient and corrupt and just not, up, not fit for purpose, which then gave the guy another year of waiting. And this was... Um, this was known, an absolute tacit understanding, but uh, as soon as they were seen... Uh, to be refugees and they would be able to be viewed as being Nauruan and so had to fight alongside all the Nauruans for their health care. But their health would suffer. But the Australian government and border force, and I, I used two terms you know, interchangeably, um, accepted this. There was no, whilst there was an acknowledgement that Nauru was not a healthcare system that was comparable to Australia, it was, well, they're not our problem anymore, even though we were paying Nauru thousands and thousands of dollars a month just to have them there for visas and you know hundreds of thousands of dollars to have a whole, a whole infrastructure of people like me and security guards and infrastructure guys and all that sort of stuff and so they really fell within this grey area where Australia were legally able to say no they're not our problem they're Nauru's problem but actually nothing happened without border force being all over it and then when you did have a situation where Nauru would push back and say no actually we don't want to be told what to do by Australia, and we'd say, well, look, this person's going to die because the hospital is woefully ill-equipped and you know, cannot deal with this kind of situation. You then had an interesting uh, conversation between Australia and Nauru where Nauru would say, hey, look, you, you can't have it both ways. Either they're ours or they're not. You know, and, and Australia would say, no, no, we need to put some pressure on, and there'd always be some money passed over or some kind of deal done to keep Nauru and and Australia talking to each other. So these refugees were absolutely used as political footballs. And the only losers in this whole game were the refugees. It never ceases to amaze me how dehumanised refugees and asylum seekers become in this system of offshore detention. What are some of the medical situations that you encountered and why was it not possible for some people to receive the medical care they needed on Nauru? We did have some situations where you kept thinking maybe it's just incompetence or maybe just a lack of awareness. And then some situations where you knew the Australian government was um, had thought about these decisions. And, for example, I'll talk about terminations where abortion is illegal on Nauru. 
Uh, it's a deeply conservative, the small C Christian country, and you just can't get an abortion. So if you have a Nauruan girl who, a lady who, who needs an abortion, very quietly they'll be flown off back to Australia to have it um, with no particular questions asked. It's a sort of tacit understanding that's what's going on, a nice bit of hypocrisy there. But um, women, so refugees coming to Australia to have terminations, where they would then be um, often would sit there when they got to Australia and say, you know what, I, I don't think I can go through this, often because they'd be so far on their pregnancies uh, because of the delays. And so you'd have a lady, normally a termination would happen about eight weeks. The average age, I believe, for a termination was about 18, 19 weeks, which is incredibly late. Um, and it means that you're hearing the baby, you're feeling the baby kick and all that sort of stuff. Dishon has already been traumatized. You may well have uh, got pregnant because of a rape. It's, it's all traumatic. And, um, so then they try and stay in Australia. And Peter Dutton hated that. And he would um, go on TV and say they're trying to get pregnant to have babies to come to Australia and demonize refugees like that. What he did then was say, OK, if they're refugees and they're pregnant, this is halfway during my time there, then they have to be treated as Nauruans again. And so uh, we will not evacuate them. And Nauruans have to choose to take them off island to get, termin- you know, to get terminations. Knowing full well there was no way the Nauru doctors were going to sign off on that because it was basically illegal in, uh, under Nauru and law. And so we, there was uproar amongst um, border force and the, um, and the refugees and the, the medical staff because we saw these traumatized people suddenly being told, no, you're not going to get the termination that you, know, that you, you desperately want because who would want to bring a child into this, this environment that you're in? you know, with no future and no hope. And uh, so, yeah, we had this crazy situation where the Australian government had pushed Nauru into a corner, uh, but there was no acknowledgement that uh, by saying to refugees, no, you're Nauru now, not our problem, which was just a, a, another indignity, another vicarious trauma onto the uh, refugees. They knew from numerous um, reports given by people like me, uh, my paramedics and the nurses and the other staff on the ground about the woeful standards of the um to run hospital, the Republic of Nauru hospital. And there was never an acceptance of this. This was unacceptable. It was more a, you can't criticize them that much because otherwise Nauruans will take you off. So really they would put the medical staff in a disgusting position where you had to go and play ball or play nice and try and appease the Nauruans. And they were you know, good, proud people, very, very happy to try and do the best of what they had. But if you went in there as a doc and said, look, your treatment in, in emergency for this case has been atrocious. We need to get them off. They would see us as being oh, overbearing, imperialistic, and you know, off you go, or we'll we'll cancel your visa and we'll ex, you know, export you from the island, we'll deport you. And the Australian government knew that, and they they put the staff in there where basically they wanted yes men or yes women to say everything's fine, everything's great. There's not a problem with the hospital. There's not a problem with mental health and refugees. And if you started saying no, this isn't good enough, and not be there, not having their needs met their mental health is such that it can't be treated. You know, it's completely inappropriate to try and treat someone who traumatised a situational trauma, quite apart from all the things they've gone through in their lives beforehand. So, but to be stuck in, in an environment which continues to traumatise you, and if you kept saying that, then you would again get um, removed. So the Australian government would employ you, and as soon as you started kicking back against the system and started um, pointing fingers and saying that the Nauru, Nauru is not an acceptable place and not an appropriate place to these people which we looked after you would lose your job and the australian government are well aware of this so thinking about the sort of people who work in the medical profession many people must have been there because they thought they could make a difference there must have been a high turnover of staff yeah there were a lot of people would come out just for one swing or rotation so maybe five six weeks and never come back again uh, some people would try and stick it out for a couple of rotations and then after a while I think no I'm not actually getting anywhere with this some people were quite happy to just not think about the ethical moral dilemmas they're going through and would square away with their own conscience and say well at least I'm inside the, pardon my language but I'm in the tent pissing out and I'm inside the system I can try and change something while I'm in there uh, but that's how I felt but uh, at least if not me then who I, I believe I had a heart for these guys um, if I wasn't trying my best for them then they'd just get someone else in who wasn't going to complain. The Australian government employed a lot of Filipino doctors and nurses who were very, very loving, very, 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 very competent, but were on wafer-thin contracts. And so they they knew that if they ever spoke out, 
the contracts would get, you know, just get torn up. And so it, it had a spider, you know, a short and curly, so to speak. Um, there was a high, high turnover staff. Certainly it had a, a lot of people who also were completely complicit. Uh, and if you went to any briefing given by Border Force or given by the security companies, you know, Serco, Wilson's, they changed the name from time to time. But you'd be told, remember, we don't know who these people are. They're all trying to make it, you know, they're trying it on. And, and so you had some people who are quite willing to be part of this as well. I mean, I like to think that number is in the minority, but there's always, in, in any setup like this, there's got to be a, an amount of people who are going to not rock the boat, just collect the money and not think about it, and only later maybe go, hang on, that was, that was a terrible thing. The time it got interesting for people's consciences is when you did try and speak up at a meeting and say, no, we're doing a harm here, and you could see people get really quite agitated about it because you're calling one and you're saying, look, you're part of the system and you're letting it happen there's going to be some lawyers involved here at some point. There will be an inquiry, you know, whether it be a Royal Commission or Federal Commission or whatever it might be, or individual legal cases, where it, it, it bred this atmosphere of paranoia where people didn't want to be the person left holding the baby, so to speak, if a decision was made. And the problem with that is that it means that um, you have a lot of people just nodding things through and not actually saying, no, this is wrong, because if you did speak up, you'd lose your job. Tell me about resignation syndrome. Resignation syndrome, my understanding is it was first described in um, uh, asylum seekers in Sweden um, who, um, where the children would effectively go to their beds, um, become like a locked-in syndrome in a way where they, they gave up hope, um, they, they couldn't see a future, they didn't know what else to do, and so the children would just take to their beds and end up not eating, not drinking, unable to walk, and just effectively living living corpses, for want of a better word. That was well documented in um, in the medical press. Uh, then you had some children who went on hunger strike in, in Nauru because they would see their parents so distressed about their situations, what they try to do, and the interminable delays, quite apart from the indignities and, and fear that these children had, um, you know, living in, in tents on a, a hostile island. And some would take to their beds. There was certainly an element of... Um, now, Peter Dutton would call it a copycat, but I think there was some kids would certainly just have given up and become almost a catatonic because of their mental state. And, you know, nothing you could do could convince them that they could do anything. Some thought that this was a way to get there to make some change in their lives, to affect some control over what they were doing. So by hunger striking, we're just giving up. And then certainly there'll be a small portion of kids who, who would be coached by um, by families. Well, not coached, but uh, said, look, you know, they've done this and they've got off. Always going to be an element of that, which, of course, politicians would jump on. But there's no two ways, um, no doubt in my mind from what I saw, saw a couple of kids who, who they had just given up the ghost, really. They, they had no other reason for living. They were deeply distressed by the situation their family was in. Sometimes they felt guilty for having put their families in that situation. They felt if they weren't there, then maybe their, their parents would have had a better chance of getting, uh, getting to their freedom. And so maybe in a way that's how they were asserting some kind of control. But resignation syndrome is, is horrific and wholly man-made in this, in this situation Australian-made. That must have been very difficult to witness. You worked on Nauru for two years. When did you reach your limit? Well, yeah, I think everyone's got a tipping point. And I think I, did, I certainly went in there going, well, you can do some good medicine there. You can you can try and do your best for the patient in front of you. And that's how I squared it away at first. You know, you, you have you know, your four principles in the first do no harm and uh, just advocate for the patients. And I went in there with no particular set views about Australia's immigration system you know i, I again because it's you know, out of sight out of mind there's not much in the press about it i didn't have a an accident there i certainly wasn't a bleeding heart liberal you know I, I hadn't spoken out about refugees or asylum seekers before um i just thought i'll go I'll, I'll at least go there so i can form a, a decent opinion on it um and after a while yeah i realized that um there came a time when you could no longer square that way of your conscience. But the, you know, the, the good you were doing was fine, 
Um, but at the same time, you're working in a system that was just uh, set up to be evil. And there's a banality of, of evil, and that phrase has been used a lot in other much more emotive circumstances, but it was with every little indignity that was um, feasted, foisted upon these refugees, you were part of that. And, and so then people did naturally, I think, if they started getting angry about it, either refused to think about it and just collect the money each, each week, and it was good money, uh, or said, no, let's see if we can change things. And I went in there with a good in, in good conscience to try and change things, which I thought were just ridiculous, and maybe they'd just been bureaucratic oversights. And after a while, I realized that no one was listening. You know, you, there's only so many emails you can send up a chain, and you get very reassuring, yes, 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 isn't it terrible? We've heard you. And you say, well, no, come on, I, I want a name. I want to know who is saying no to this transfer. I want to know who. And that's where the, the bureaucracy kicks in, because... I put my name to a referral, as I would do in, in Australia, and I'm saying, I think this should happen. There you go. And that's what I'm used to doing, as any doctor would be used to doing, or a judge you know, would be used to handing down a sentence and you know, passing a judgment and saying, yes, I stand by this, and this is why, and I can back that up. But any time I would send a patient off, for, usually for you know, review, they had to go to Australia, the answer would come back, and it would be written by the committee or the delegation. It was never a person. And so they, they kept it very impersonal to spread the blame. So there's no one like – I'm used to you know, getting on the phone and phoning up that person and saying, look, can you please explain why not? You know, if there's a reason I'm missing, if, if this person's a terrorist or you know, if there's something else I'm, I'm not being told, I understand that, but can you tell me? But you never got an answer back. And so it was a very, um, very nebulous um, set of accountability in – in border force and that, that's shown in oh, when they've had inquiries uh, it would be at uh, the poor man who died or raised Varas who died in um, Manus where you basically have Australian border force and IHMS trying to handle responsibilities between themselves and so if you have a similar situation with IHMS border force and then put in Nauru as well all trying to say no, no, no not our problem someone else's problem not our responsibility and then it would come back to well it was this committee and so who sits in the committee and they wouldn't ever tell you and i found that really quite telling no one wanted to put their name to it you know no one, because i knew it was un, uh, untenable and well you can hide behind yes it's politics it's it's the you know the greater good and but the mental gymnastics but the politicians still roll out to say we're saving lives you know we're staying drownings at sea by killing these people slowly on dry land is um, quite incredible, really. It's a huge blind spot I think Australia has. We've all heard the rhetoric of saving lives at sea, and I, I do think it's an honest motivation, but it does seem hard to reconcile if what you're doing instead is subjecting people to a tortured existence. It's, yeah, I mean, you know, torture is a strong, very emotive word, but surely to, you know, and again, you say depriving people of their freedom, and they say, oh, no, they are free, they can get out and walk around this island. You go, no, it's, it takes 20 minutes to drive around. Come on, guys. It's, it's um, yeah, it's quite breathtaking, really, the rhetoric. But it, it's not, not even so much that it's, uh, if you're going to do this, if this is going to be your policy, and whether it's a stated one or not, or just an unspeaking one, that, you know, we are going to make an example of these these couple of hundred people, you've got a, a duty of care to them. And that's where Australia did not discharge a duty of care. And the way it tried to hide behind other countries, you know, so Nauru, um, by saying, no, not, not our problem anymore, but at the same time, yeah, absolutely, we're going to stop them leaving. That's where Australia um, has really um, behaved in an inhuman way. So what happened when you spoke out? Uh, I faced, um, well, apart from, uh, by then I'd already lost my job. Um, we again was kept in nebulous terms that um, they just said I'd been too vocal about my um, uh, concerns about the Nauru hospital and they couldn't um, guarantee my safety. And I said, well, look, who's, who's terminating my contract? And no one would say. And I thought, this is just typical. And you knew that someone in Border Force would have said, nah, that person's being too noisy. And they might have done that because the Nauruans would have said, no, get rid of this person. They, if they're speaking up, they're not good enough. You know, we don't, we don't want that kind of publicity. But no one would tell me. Again, it was quite nebulous. But I did speak out, um, which I'm still pleased I did. Um, in terms of, um, well, I had to go and find another job pretty quickly. Um, I've... And then it's one of those things, the more you, the more you do speak out, you realize that um, because I feel I was quite a credible witness and that, um, you know, I was in the forces, I was, these were all stereotypes, but I, I was fairly articulate and um, also was employed at a fairly, you know, the Australian government has seen fit you know, through IHMS to employ me as their senior man, senior man on the ground. And so 
what I said was um, had some credibility. And a lot of it was, I've got nothing to gain from this and, and didn't make any money from doing this. You know, this is, um, uh, that, that certainly um, enabled me to get some coverage, I think, instead of being just lumped together with, oh, it's an Adani protester or it's someone who's complaining about fracking or whatever. And I was going, no, this isn't right. I've seen this. This isn't fair. And I'm not, you know, straight out of the box GP. I'm fairly weather-beaten. I've seen some fairly um, unpleasant things in my time with the forces. And so I, um, yeah, speaking out certainly um, uh, was whilst it was good for my conscience, I suppose, and, and I did uh, did find myself being used a bit of a political football, uh, um, but that, that's okay. I've, I've been subjected to a fair amount of abuse from, um, I suppose you call it the far right, or people who just see you as being a, a terrorist, loving sympathiser, and I'm an Australian and things like that. But that's okay, you know. I think the the, the political landscape has become so poisoned over the last 20 years since um since howard and, and the tampa it's become such a polarized debate that uh, it's very difficult to have a, a non-politicized conversation about how australia does defend its borders and um you just have to look at the rhetoric but it's still wheeled out you know every every day every month you know in, in parliament by the usual players you know trying to trying to demonize people we certainly Newspapers in particular are absolutely disgraceful, you know, with um, leaking medical details about um, asylum seekers or refugees and to use them to benefit. And then when they're actually asked about another case, then the department will say, no, no, we couldn't possibly comment on individual cases. But it's been, um, yeah, it's been quite sobering, really, seeing how Australia does deal with um, its uh, asylum seekers. I think there'll be a, a day of reckoning at some point. But right now it's, uh, and, you know, when you've got the Liberal so we, the LNP and the uh, Labour Party pretty much in lockstep um, because it's seen as political um, suicide to go anywhere out uh, to, to go anywhere else. And although we had some wins in the Children of Nauru campaign, that certainly got some um, traction. And with uh, Karen Phelps at the time, Dr. Phelps, um, she certainly seemed to galvanise a movement as well to get the kids off. And the Australian public almost kind of get a, yeah, OK, strong borders, nah, not right to have kids. Um, stuck for that long. Okay, get yeah, the kids off. Let's get the women off, and then let's get the USA deal. I, I'm sure everyone just wants it to go away because it's a, it's an embarrassing sore. You know, Australia can't sit there on the international stage and be on the uh, Human Rights um, Assembly of the United Nations and talk about what a wonderful multicultural society it is, and it's the most you know, successful story in the world. Whereas even today, Christina Keneally was talking about. Um, immigration again and straight away it's become a, a you know she's being racist no it's not it's become a poison chalice but yeah the yeah looking at how australia treats its um its boat people for want of a better word and, and then you look back in history and see how it happened after the vietnam war and the difference in in values being espoused by politicians is absolutely fascinating which again was all new to me i didn't have a political burn in my body before i started this but it it does boil down to politics and who you know whether you're pandering to hansen and one nation or you're pandering to dutton's wing of the lnp or you know these things get votes and it's an easy target to kick someone when they're down you know, if you're feeling tough don't worry that that brown man is you know he's a terrorist he's gonna take your job well see the refugees um i i dealt with just like any other australians you know there were many who i'd be absolutely delighted to to share a home with whatever my neighbours. There were some who uh, I thought, no, absolutely not. You shouldn't be here. You're unpleasant. But then if I applied the same standard to my patients, yeah, I, I just wouldn't. You know, the doctor's job is to treat the person in front of them. And uh, overwhelmingly, I was surprised by the um, lack of ill will that the refugees um, viewed Australia with. They, they still just were going, like, surely the Australians don't, don't mean this. This is just, you know, politicians taking cheap shots. And I think on the whole, they're doing that. But the narrative, again, as I say, is very poisoned. Were you concerned when doctors and, in fact, any contractors who worked for Australian Border Force were suddenly subject to secrecy provisions in the Australian Border Force Act? And that meant anyone revealing information gained during their employment uh, and revealing that without permission could face two years in jail. Yeah, I was pretty, um, I was anxious about that. And certainly before before I spoke out, I um, took some some guidance from people like George Newhouse because I didn't want to go to prison. Um, I also at the time had, you know, I still do have, have children I have to support. Um, and I, I didn't want to go to prison. I don't mean who would, 
I think, and I, that's another conversation, but it, they managed to get a loophole for doctors, and I'm very pleased about that. And I think doctors um, for refugees worked very hard to um, push that, that loophole, so to speak. Um, because I think in the end, who do you, you know, what, what's the greater good? You know, do you believe your, I, I figured that I still wanted to be able to work as a doctor, even if I ended up getting deported to the UK, I wanted to be able to work as a doctor again, even though it wasn't necessarily going to be in Australia. And so I think my, my duty was to the Hippocratic Oath or, you know, the morals and principles that you, you go, go with when you go to medical school, when you graduate, then the, um, moral, uh, opinion of the Australian government because that will change you know it hasn't always been like this and so yeah in the end I felt that I'd rather um I'd rather be answerable to a, a bunch of doctors and, and say yeah okay so um these politicians thought I wasn't doing the right thing but the doctors did so yeah I, I don't believe um uh I, I know the border force that was designed to scare people and uh, to, to shut people up but you can't do that. that that's the thing whenever it's been time memorial as soon as you put things um offshore out of sight out of mind there's a reason you're doing it you're doing it you can hide behind national security but on water matters not being reported on unless it gives you political um gain for some reason and we'll let a boat through we'll talk about that they're doing this because they're ashamed of it and they know that you know and so i had to have sort of courage in my convictions that no in the end i i did speak to a couple of people who would be railing against what i had done that said has anything i've said being untrue and the answer was well no it is true so well there you go then you know, I didn't make anything up. I just reported the facts. And and you can't, that, that truth will out. It has to come out. And when you've got such a, a load of people working in this kind of organization, it, you, it's never going to, it's never going to stay quiet for long. You just have to look at any other, you know, dubious piece of where the CIA's interrogation of uh, terrorist subjects, you know, um, after 9-11 in Guantanamo, the truth always comes out. And this is a particularly unpleasant period in Australia's history, which I'm sure will be looked upon and picked up, picked up by um, people in years to come. Uh, I wait for that time. But um, no, in the end, I, I knew that if I just stuck to the truth, then uh, I'd, I'd be on fairly safe moral ground, if nothing else. And also, yeah, I did have to be able to look at my kids and say, yeah, I knew this was happening. And did I, what, did I say something? Yeah, I thought it was time to say something. I'm not, I'm not trying to be all po-faced and moralistic about it. But there did come a time when I thought, no, this is just wrong what we're doing and at that point you know you tell people you tell people in the chain the chain of command which i was quite comfortable with and to get woefully um useless answers uh and people i just well, they don't want to know they're just happy to take the money and, and basically do that i'm not listening but well you, you have to listen so yeah, i'm still quite pleased about that but yeah keeping things quiet government and mandated the australian people don't like being told what to do they like being told what to believe, I think, on occasion, but they're not like being told what to do. And I think I joined that, that boat. I didn't didn't enjoy being um, told I had to shut up. I thought, no, that's not right. You know, I'm happy to sign the Official Secrets Act. I've done things with submarines and marines and things like that. If submarines sign the Official Secrets Act, and I'll take those secrets to my grave because I didn't think they were wrong, whereas this was wrong. What did you think of the Medivac law? Yeah, I think the Medivac law was, um, it was good to see because it did make people, um, uh, Town and in particular, I've had a few conversations uh, with uh, over the um, well, last couple of years, was a, is a deeply principled and uh, exceptional human being and, and a doctor. And she, as far as I could see, pushed this through. And then with Karen Phelps, it seemed to be a, uh, an opportunity in the political landscape, but suddenly it was a bit of a hung parliament and, um, and they might actually be able to do this conscience vote where they could get it through border medevac law because what they're arguing was not to weaken borders it was actually to get decent you know to make the decisions for medical evacuation be in the hands of doctors not politicians that's how it's framed and of course things get muddied along the way and so the rhetoric being utilized against the medevac law was vile to watch uh, and and still turns my stomach a little bit when self-professed christians you know were talking against it and uh, even some of the doctors on the opposition sorry not on the opposition the lnp side you know, who was sitting there going, no, 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 it's saving lives at sea and go through this gymnastics. But in medevac law, for a short time, it was um, uh, in force. Well, apart from the fact it was the first vote that the government had lost, I think, for 80 years in the House, was um, very telling. That was hugely um, gratifying to see. I think it gave the refugees and asylum seekers some hope. 
I think it gave a lot of the activist community some hope that actually maybe we were turning a corner. And then I got astounded when, um, and, and the doctors then went to overdrive to going through these these cases and, and uncovering all these problems and starting up this process. So I think it helped to accelerate the um, movement of people to Australia for them to get the care they required, and sometimes to um, to Taiwan as well, and which was you know good for people. So I thought it was a great law, and then and the fact that when the government came back, everything else that they could have concentrated on, you know, in, in Australia at the time, uh, that was the one thing they did, and I thought that really does sum up that they're speaking to a base. They think there are votes in it, and this ideology is just twisted and warped to be able to try and get it back again. And then you know, leaning with leaning on Jackie Lambie, and I spoke with. Um, Jackie before the Medivac bill, and, and I think she got sold a pup by the um, by the LNP. They promised her things they haven't delivered on. It, it was just, it was pretty depressing to watch it get repealed. Um, it was pretty, pretty poor, pretty poor standards from uh, any kind of uh, functioning democracy. But you know, that's there's votes in it, you know. And if you've poisoned the electorate against it, and if you've got the Murdoch press behind you, and if you've got you know where they're showing cartoons that wouldn't be out of place and disturb me. You know, when he used to depict uh, Jewish people as having hooked noses and all this business, and they've got um, refugees with turbans looking like terrorists chasing nurses, all this sort of stuff. It's all a narrative they're trying to push. I think Australia is still better than this. Um, but, yeah, it was pretty depressing seeing it, um, seeing it get repealed. But uh, also it did manage to galvanise an awful lot of doctors and medical opinion um, to help these people with no financial incentive, no imperative. They you know, had doctors from all over the country. And again, I would like to big up Sarah Tanner because she doesn't get as much recognition as I think she should. Uh, Sarah and several colleagues, Neela, people like this, who worked tirelessly to um, coordinate doctors around Australia to make reviews and, and get notes done and, and to then work seamlessly with people like the National Justice Project and the HLC um, and the um, ASRC, all these people who came across to, to as a joint effort to try and get as many people's cases reviewed and off whilst that window was open was um, yeah, it was a beautiful thing to see. It is a beautiful thing to see, and it must have been very difficult to see the government repeal those laws as one of their first items of business after winning the election. Yes, I mean, I'm sure that was Scott Morrison talking to uh, you know the the the, the, the Dutton-esque side of the um of his party but yeah to save face over that is really pretty pretty petty and it's the kind of thing you'd expect from trump you know but to see that happen with um morrison i felt was um pretty galling especially when he had himself a first christian i know it shouldn't come down to personalities but the problem is it it does when you've got that few people these are they use numbers but these are people who i remember as in the refugees i remember their faces remember some of their stories had a you know, unique insight into the trials and tribulations they'd face and the fact they're waiting, patiently waiting, waiting and waiting just to get the care they required. And that's what I think sometimes we, we did forget. Um, Barry Cassidy, when he was hosting Insiders, put it quite nicely. He was talking about um, the face of Australia's asylum seeker policy was a, a nine-year-old boy trying to get help. And when he said that, you could see that the government spin doctors would be having nightmares going, oh, God, how are we going to spin against this? But then at some point, you've got to sit down and go, what are we trying to defend here? We're trying to stop. You know, we're defending us not giving care to, to needy people who came seeking help, which goes against every international law. But, you know, they've changed the rhetoric. You know, not allowed to, they're illegal immigrants. They're boat people. They're not you know, unauthorized maritime arrivals. It's still not illegal to seek asylum, all, all these arguments. But yeah, it's, um, I think we need a paradigm shift in Australian politics to move on from that. You need to go back to the days after the Vietnam War um, to say, yep, we're going to have a, we're always going to have people wanting to come to Australia because, you know, it, it's going to be better or better for them, or offer more hope than uh, the places they're fleeing from. But we do need to have a regional solution. We need to work with Malaysia and um, Indonesia and Sri Lanka and to, to to actually give people some kind of future and a process. And I believe when Kevin Rudd said that the offshore um, decision, and uh, so the Rudd-Gillard decision to keep people on Nauru, he's sort of trying to revise history a bit, but saying it was never supposed to be more than a year. I, I'd like to believe him. You know, uh, I think that it would, most people would think it would be unacceptable to, to keep people locked up effectively for a year. You know, you look at other European countries and, and it's sort of 70 days maximum, three weeks, you know, three months, that kind of idea. 
only because you know overwhelmingly someone's mental health is going to deteriorate so quickly as soon as they lose hope. And after six months or a year, yeah, it, it's never going to go back. And we've we've traumatized um, this cohort of uh, refugees, and we, we're now dealing with consequences. You know, we 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 only uh, it's. It's unbelievable, unconscionable cruelty of Australia to do that. And there are pillars of asylum policy of both turnbacks I can kind of go with. And that, that makes sense. And that's what stops them coming. But uh, indefinite detention or offshore detention, that's such a flawed policy and was always going to be so. And the fact that no one could look at that and say, of course, they're going to get sicker. You know, as long as we put them somewhere, which is woefully ill-prepared for it. And temporary protection visas are just absolutely disgraceful. You know, why should someone's... Um, you know, once you're a refugee, you're a refugee. That's it. You know, it's like, you know, you hit puberty, you hit puberty, bang. It doesn't, you don't go backwards. And so the idea of having a temporary protection visa, so these people who managed to get to Australia, serve them, I think, God, I wish you'd gone to the States, you know, uh, you know, because at least you have some chance of freedom. But they're living day to day, they can't work, they can't contribute to the community. You just have to look, I know it's slightly different circumstances, but the fact that there's four people, their, their family from Bulawayla, um, stuck on Christmas Island. That's insane, you know, to have that by any, you know, any financial argument for Christmas Island when they said they're going to open up again and close it down and it's open again. And that's just nuts. And so a government, the fact they could sit there and say, yeah, we're careful with your money, but we're spending 30 million a year on locking these people up on Christmas is just ludicrous. So the whole thing is a mess and it's reactive policy and it's playing to a lowest common denominator of othering other people. So whilst I'm not a politician, I, I think that Australia, we really need a leader who's got a big enough majority to sit there and say, actually, I don't need these kind of um, xenophobic, unpleasant um, votes. And, and actually, we can um, behave as grown-ups on the international stage instead of being very reactive, very partisan, very xenophobic. That would be a great step in the right direction. And I do think that the majority of Australians are in favour of being a country that stands up for the vulnerable, that acts in accordance with our values. What are your hopes for the future? My hope for the future is Australia once again shows what a responsible player on the world stage that she can be or it can be. Um, Australia has a proud history of welcoming migrants. Australia, or well, modern Australia, is based on boat people. Um, Australia... Um, I believe has so much to offer um, other countries by saying, no, you can, you can come here and we'll look after you. But at the same time, whilst they can control the people who come to Australia and the circumstances in which they come, to, to quote Mr. Howard, they must also say, if we're going to do that, we have to look after people who've come to us because you can't sit there and be a responsible player on the world stage and know that you are willfully by abrogating a responsibility or, or palming off to a third country, um, stepping away from that just for a, you know, a, just for legal expediency. Uh, my, my hope is that Australia will realise quite how much the uh, people who come to Australia seeking, seeking uh, help have to offer. I think that um, they just want a better life. You know, if you're a terrorist and you want to come to Australia, you're not going to get on a boat you know, where you might sink, you might drown, and then you might get locked up for five years. You just get to go on a plane, you'll probably, probably fly first, first class. You know, it's not a, that's not the way to go. Australia's got so much to offer, and it's refugees, asylum seekers are not going to go away. It's going to be a huge problem for the world globally, and I think uh, Australia needs to start thinking globally. Um, and you could say, yep, that's fine. If you do have people, we accept people who go want to come to Australia, that's fine. We'll process them in uh, in their, their country of departure, so in Indonesia, Malaysia or Sri Lanka, give them a future. Because I think if they know then, if you're languishing, languishing in a camp in Indonesia and um, you're told, yeah, you might get a visa, but it's going to be 15 years, you're probably going to want to get on a boat, you know, because you'll think there's no other option. No one gets on a boat unless a house is burning down. But if you're told, no, no, we're going to process you, Yes, in a month. Yes, you're now you're, you're you're fine. You know you are a refugee. We've done that in a tiny fashion, and then we split it up. We share the I hate to say burden, but we share the um, share the load amongst other countries, similar countries in you know, Canada, America, if you will, the UK, South America, lots of other countries. We'd be happy to step up to the plate 
But right now, Australia can't sort of go, look, everyone wants to come here, but we're going to treat them horribly to do so. We can't have the we're saving lives at sea argument because it's it's just not right. So I guess my hope for the future is there has to be a day of um, some reconciliation. There has to be some acknowledgement of the, the wrongdoing that has been perpetuated by Australian Border Force in particular. And there has to also be uh, some recognition of the harm that um, we've done to Nauru, I suspect by um, extension to uh, Papua New Guinea and Manus as well. Nauru did not ask for this. Nauru is a desperate uh, state, you know, effectively a client state of Australia, but to be um, treated as Australia's um, whipping boy like this is is pretty despicable way to treat um, a sovereign state as well and has brought out the worst in in the Nauruans and so their politics and decisions made too. I think there needs to be some honesty and truth telling about what happened. And there has to be an acknowledgement that offshore processing is not the way to go. You could put people in the middle of the Australian desert, middle of the Simpson, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a camp if you really wanted to, and they would be even more cut off from the outside world than they are right now in Nauru. But you know what? At that point, you'd have to then give them hope and give them a future and make sure you resource it properly. But right now, the way they're doing it by hiding behind an impoverished state like uh, Nauru is a despicable way of doing things, and it diminishes us all. Dr. Nick Martin, thank you so much for your time, and thanks too for your candidness and for being brave enough to stand up when you saw wrongs. It's frightening to think how much longer women and children would have remained on Nauru had it not been for you speaking out. Thank you very much, Alex. Very kind of you. The more I've heard during the making of this podcast, the more it's becoming clear that we need to end offshore processing of asylum seeker claims. We need to speed up the process so that people can have a life worth living. If we make these changes to our policies, we can then look at influencing our region and then influence other countries around the world. Right now, we're an exemplar of a cruel race to the bottom. We can do the right thing, just like our brave leaders have done in the past, just like good parents would teach their children to do. We need leadership, and the leadership needs to come from all of us. If you need to talk to someone, support is available. Call Lifeline on 131114 anytime for confidential telephone crisis support. Women and Children First is an Integra co-production in association with the National Justice Project. Produced and mixed by Alex and Gal Roussos. Artwork by Kerry Hardy from Black Sheep Studio. Original music by Tim Hall and Alex Roussos. Visit the Women and Children First Facebook, Instagram or Twitter, WACF Podcast. <laughs>